Our text this morning is James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather here on this first morning of the week. We don't always think of or remember that Sunday is the first day. And we come with our first fruits of attention, of affection, of energy to praise you, Lord, to be changed by you. Humble us, God, as we gather. Give us ears to hear and please, O Lord, transform us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is in your precious name we pray. Amen. My dear, devout Muslim friend looked at me from across the table, and he told me, you must never consume alcohol. It will force you to sin. Uh, Perhaps this is why Islam is not growing as fast in Wisconsin as it might in other places, in light of their thoughts on alcohol, which, if you did not know, alcohol is forbidden in Islam. But my friend was telling me that becoming drunk will indeed force you, force you to do sinful things. Now, the truth with consuming too much alcohol is not that it forces anyone to do anything in particular, but rather it dramatically lowers your inhibitions, right? Those barriers that tell you, don't think that, don't say that, don't do that, run, run the other direction. It removes those those barriers that are in place in our mind. Living in Wisconsin, you may have witnessed this, or maybe you witnessed the aftermath of conversations of things like this. I didn't know what I was doing. I was drunk. It's the alcohol's fault, not mine. With drunkenness, it can be so easy to see people play the blame game. But let's be honest, even without the influence of alcohol, humans are so quick to shift the blame elsewhere, away from themselves. I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean to hurt you in the intensity of the moment. It's, it was the moment's fault. If you hadn't said what you did, I certainly wouldn't have done what I did. Maybe you've said one of those things before. I know I have. But we do this to God as well, right? God, why did you make me like this? Why do I have these desires? This is your fault. God, if you hadn't put me in this family, this circumstance, this job, I wouldn't be struggling in this way. We can tend to sound like our father father Adam from the garden when he said to God, God, it was the woman that you put here with me that caused me to sin. We can be so quick even to blame God rather than to bless him. And when I say bless, I mean to, to praise him and exalt him, to honor him by even obeying him. As we live in the Western world with perhaps almost everything we could imagine at our fingertips, everything we might need, we still can find ourselves blaming God rather than blessing him. This is obvious when we are quick to notice what we don't have 
rather than what we do have. Sure, I have a car, but I don't have that one. Sure, I have a job, but it doesn't pay quite like that one would. Sure, I have kids, but I don't have quiet. I don't have sleep. I don't have time for me. Or perhaps today you feel the rub or the burn of, yeah, I have, I have quiet, I have sleep, I have time for me, but I don't have kids. Particular hard thing to deal with on Mother's Day. All of us in some area have said or are saying today, God, why will you not give me what I want? Friends, we are a people so prone to blame God rather than to bless him. Today in James 1, we see that because God is the father of lights, he's light himself, we can and we must bless him instead of blaming him. Let me say it again. God is the father of lights. He's light himself. We can and must bless God instead of blaming him. Of our six verses we have, we're going to split them right down the middle. We have two points, verses 13 to 15 and then 16 to 18, if that's helpful for you to frame in your minds. Our first point in verses 13 to 15, uh, specifically, we see that God is light, in, and he himself is not tempted with evil whatsoever. Let me ask you, do you ever wonder, God, why am I struggling with this temptation? Where is this coming from? Why are you allowing me to face this? Well, before answering those questions, James wants us to notice the relationship between trials and between temptations. See, throughout all of James 1 so far, as we've heard about trials, and you even heard it in verse 12 last week, the word in the original language for trial or testing is actually the same exact word for tempt or tempting. Why? Why the connection there? Why the same word? And, and why the different translation? Well, James clearly in these few verses is using that word in a different way. There's a different sense. James has made clear so far that trials and testing are God's actual loving instrument in our life. They're meant to prove our faith or to improve our character or our spiritual maturity. Or if anything, they're just meant to drive us to greater dependence upon God. This is why earlier in James he said, count it as all joy when we face trials. Or in just a couple verses, he's going to point to Abraham when he was tested and how that proved that Abraham's faith was in fact genuine. So if trials and testings are God's love or his loving instrument in our lives, what are temptations then? What's the connection between these two? Well, in our culture, we might tend to think about temptations only in a few ways, perhaps in, in sexual sin lens or perhaps when we're offered that additional donut or beer and we don't tempt me right? When we, that we're tempted to only read perhaps one thing or watch something we ought not to. But here James, again, is specifically emphasizing the connection between the trials and temptations. It's in the midst of a trial that there can be an impulse that rises within us to sin in some way. It could perhaps be like that longing that we normally think of, a longing for something we ought not to have, but it also could be just an impulse to get out of the trial or to react in the midst of a trial. Let's consider just a few examples. Uh, consider the example of a trial of being behind a slow driver on the, uh, in the fast lane on Highway 41. No, one, no one's experienced that, I'm sure, especially if you're late. <laughs> you haven't experienced that. <clears throat> well, God is testing you perhaps to practice patience and contentment. The temptation, the, the impulse rises in you to curse this person 
Maybe to hit the horn or at least just blow by him and give him that angry, questioning look. Why are you in the fast lane? Perhaps it's a trial of an overtired child who simply won't go to bed or simply won't eat their veggies. Well, God is testing our commitment or our, our commitment to care, to instruct, to not discipline in anger. We're tempted to silence that rebellion with a raised voice or with some other form of angry discipline. Consider the example of a trial of a misunderstanding with a spouse, a parent, a friend. God may be testing our willingness, our willingness to love that person by faith, but yet our impulse may be to think or to call them and their feelings stupid and just walk away. There may also be those moments that we really don't know how to make sense of. Persecution, unexpected illness, loss of a job, a family member not walking with the Lord any longer, or a family member simply saying to you, I no longer love you anymore. Even when we face such hardships, God may still be testing us, not in, not in a petty way or not even not in a cruel way, but perhaps he's testing us with the question where God is asking, will you still love me if that thing is gone? Or will you know that I, God, still love you even when that thing is no longer there? It's in the most difficult of trials that, that temptation arises and it remains to say, God, you don't love me. God, you're not good. God, you've forgotten me. This is your fault. James wants to make clear for us that temptations, the impulse to sin that arise in the trials on Highway 41, at the dinner table, or in the face of real loss, those temptations, they do not come from God. Yes, he tests us. He does. It's for good. But he does not tempt us to sin. God does not want us to be given over to evil. And what's James' argument for this? It's because he says that God himself is not tempted with evil whatsoever. We heard it in the call to worship, Psalm 5. God does not delight in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with him. It even says that he hates or abhors those who practice evil or do evil to others. 1 John 1, 5 says that God himself is light. There's no darkness, no darkness in him. God does not want us to be tempted to sin, to embrace evil, to lose hope, to question his goodness. And this is shown that in that God never does this himself. He's never given to evil. He is light. Instead, we should see here that James is making clear that temptation comes from our own twisted desires and our own hearts. We're like a fish that sees a big, juicy bait dangling, and we want it. We seize it, and we are dragged away off to sin. In verse 15, James traces that seizing of the temptation. He says that seizing the temptation causes sin, or it births sin, and it's dragged away off into death. And it's an interesting picture of birth that he's using, right? Because when a child is conceived, this is going somewhere, the baby's not going to stay there, right? This has a fruition and an end, live birth, just like temptation has sin moving towards death. Saying yes to temptations has real consequences. It is moving you somewhere, and that somewhere is certainly spiritual death. Um, in the fall of um, 2014, my wife and I uh, moved overseas, uh, where we spent several years in a campus ministry, and we 
uh, worked in a, in a local church there. Um, but in the first, uh, first two months that we were in, uh, in that country, uh, we learned that my wife was actually pregnant with our first child. It was at uh, 12 weeks, though, that we learned that our son had a rare condition. And it was at 20 weeks that we learned that our son had passed away. It was only in 20 weeks that we went from easily saying, Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, to a, an immense trial where we blamed God for this difficulty, for this loss. We faced a trial of what seemed like God asking, Will you call me good, even with a sick baby? Or even with no baby at all? Will you bless my name? Will you yet praise me or come to me in the face of what you cannot understand? Will you know that I still love you even when you experience loss? My wife would later tell me how the following year was this long trial and a sustained temptation to just be angry at God, to not read her Bible, to not pray, to blame God for the hurt and for the loss. I felt it too. And it wasn't that the hurt wasn't real or the loss wasn't devastating. It was. But the temptation to blame God for the brokenness, the brokenness of our world where infants live but only a few days. One day that will not be so. That's good news, but that's not how it is today. To say, we were tempted to say that God is not good and that we are better off on our own, away from him and his sovereign plan. Our temptations were to blame God, not to bless him. Friends, when we experience trials of all sorts, there is a temptation often at hand, right there, flowing out from our own desires. And God permitting that temptation is not evil. He is not tempting you himself. Remember, God is light, goodness, holiness, righteousness. And because of this, we must bless him, not blame him. Perhaps you're facing the immensity of the loss of a loved one, loss of a job, illness, one you love walking away from the Lord. In these circumstances that we cannot understand, how can you turn? How can you turn from blaming God to blessing him? One way we do this is, uh, one way we do this in uh, leaving behind blaming and blessing him is to simply acknowledge what you really want. I want to run from you, God. I want to be far away. I don't understand this. I want to run. We bless God after that by repeating what the disciples did to Jesus in John 6 when he asked them that if they were going to leave him too. Do you remember what they said? Jesus, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. There's no other. That's what we say. That's how we bless God in those moments and those things we cannot understand. Perhaps you are already giving in to temptations in your life. Regular anger outbursts, sinful fantasies, entertaining TV series and films that dishonor God, temptations to cultivate inappropriate relationships with someone you ought not to, or to not meet commitments that you've already said yes to. How do you bless God? Well, you bless God by not blaming him for those temptations that are maybe constantly before you, and the ones that you've maybe already given into. Rather, you bless God by tucking tail and running the opposite direction from those temptations. You run to God's open arms. Don't waste another moment allowing that, that juicy bait on the hook to hang before your eyes. It's better if you don't see it at all, if you don't entertain it at all. 
Finally, perhaps uh, you have been left unscathed today. No temptations come to mind for you. Well, you too, you can bless God with the rest of us by praying simply what Jesus commanded us to. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, the leading us into temptation, that doesn't mean that God, in fact, would lead us into temptation. Rather, it has a clear sense of do not let us fall in the face of temptation. Do not let us fall in that face of temptation. Friends, God is light himself. In him is no darkness, and he does not tempt us with evil. And for this reason, we can and we must bless his name rather than blaming him. In our second point, uh, so shifting to verses 16 to 18, we understand that God is not only light itself, but that he is the father of lights, whose giving is always good and who never changes. Verse 16 uh, serves as a transition line, as James tells us who he is talking to, that is his beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And James says that we shouldn't be deceived about what God doesn't give, temptations, verses 13 through 15, and we shouldn't be deceived about what God does in fact give, verses 16 through 18, good and perfect gifts. And so as we look at verse 17, at first glance it might seem unnecessarily redundant, right? Perhaps every good gift, every perfect gift. Well, There are two options, or kind of mainly two options of what this might mean, and they're not too far off from each other. One of them is that uh, every good gift means actually every giving, or every act of giving is good, and every perfect gift is indeed perfect. That's kind of one understanding. But it's also possible, uh, there's a second option, that this phrase itself was a common way to express the totality of something. It is all good, the giving from God. It is even all from one person, from God himself. Whichever understanding it is, it's clear that actually both are true, right? Every giving that God gives is good. And every gift that he gives is perfect, right? Because it's according to his will. But James goes on to press this point further by calling God something that he has not called anywhere else in all of Scripture. Father of lights. What does this mean? The answer is not too overly complicated. It means that God is the Father. He is the creator of the lights above our heads. The sun, the moon, the starry host. Just pause with me for a moment and think about this. What would exist if there were no sun, no moon, no stars? Nothing? Or if something did exist, we wouldn't know. We couldn't see it, right? We'd fumble about but more likely, nothing. We wouldn't exist without the sun. Can you ever remember a night when you went to bed or you went to sleep wondering, I wonder if there'll be a sun tomorrow? No, of course not. Because the Father of lights spoke, let there be light. And it was. And there continues to be. Every day we have a sun, a moon, and stars above our heads. And so when James says that every good giving and perfect gift comes down from God above, he uses Father of lights because that very name proves his point. Everything comes about from the Father of lights who created the lights. Hebrews 1 tells us that the universe is upheld by the word of Jesus' power. This means that God is speaking right now. He's upholding the sun. 
He's upholding the natural laws that keep your body literally holding together. He upholds your own life today. And so if God is the father of lights, which those lights are close enough to burn our skin, but yet not so close that they burn us alive, they are present every day, they cause everything to have life. If he is the father of those lights, then this means that truly every gift, every gift, every single gift is coming only from God's good giving, only from God's perfect providence. James goes from here and follows up by saying that the father of lights has no variation, no shadow due to change. It's clear that James, after referencing lights, can easily transition to talking about shadows, right? There's a connection there. And so even though every day we have the sun, moon, stars, our experience of them change, right? Different seasons, a snowy winter, a rainy spring, uh, or perhaps just clouds above us, right? Our experience of those lights can change. And so James is emphasizing here that though our experience of even those everyday present lights changes, God, the Father of lights who made them, does not change. The God we know and experience in the best of times and in the agony and the temptation in certain trials, he is always the same. Yesterday, today, and forevermore, he never changes. He is more constant and consistent than the sun. Something you never question is going to be there. God is more consistent than that. But wait, there's more. This is all amazing so far, but there's more. If this all isn't good enough, James pens verse 18 to display the greatest of all of God's givings, of all of God's perfect gifts. James says that by the word of truth, we are brought forth as firstfruits of his creatures. Now that phrase, word of truth, is found five times in the New Testament. Four of them are by the Apostle Paul, and they all are clearly referring to the gospel. The gospel is that message that Jesus has come to save us. He came at the precise moment he meant to, to save us from our sins, and then also to be our Lord and our King forever. It's by the gospel, the word of truth, that God's people are brought forth. They're birthed anew. They are recreated as his first fruits. So what are, what are first fruits then? Well, they're just that. It's the very first budding. It's the very first pieces of fruit on a tree. That's what first fruits are. When a tree has those first fruits, it's almost a, a sign or almost a promise of there is more coming. Just wait. There's a few fruits. There's more coming. And that's what James, he's writing to this church who are truly the first fruits of Christians on the earth. We are, we are part, we have seen such a host of Christians that have come. Even some would say that there are up to one billion Christians on the planet just today just today, not even counting the last 2,000 years. Talk about first fruits. Verse 18 also tells us that all of this, all of it comes account on account of what? It's the will of God. The Father of lights who said, let there be light, says, let my people have life, and it is so, and it is good. It is according to God's unchanging will, not our ever-changing and rebellious will, that we are made his first fruits. If it was up to us, we would follow that path in verse 15. Temptation? Yes. Sinning? Okay. Death. 
But however here, the Father of lights, according to his own will, through the word of truth, recreates us as his own people, his own first fruits, births us into life rather than being birthed towards death. What good news. What good news for us today and every day. My wife and I uh, are very blessed. We have um, four children now today, and uh, those children receive many clothes, toys, and gifts from their 11 older cousins, from aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas. And uh, at times, my wife and I, while our kids are asleep, we, we take those things and we get rid of them and get them out of the house, give them to somebody else. Um, the other day, uh, I told one of my very lovely daughters, my oldest daughter, that we needed to go to the store uh, to, to get a few things. She sat surrounded by her stuffed animals and her toys and everything else she's gathered. That's her spiritual gift, apparently, is gathering everything to herself. And she listened intently as I laid out the plan. When I finished, she said, Oh, will you buy me a new toy, Dad? Well, to which Dad promptly said, No, honey, we have enough. Well, with very, very real tears in her eyes, she leveled her complaint. You never give me anything. It's so easy to see the irony of a child surrounded by toys saying, you never give me anything. But if we're really honest, if we're really honest, we're not so quick to see that we too sit surrounded by constant gifts. And yet we blame God for what we don't have rather than blessing him for what we do. One of my favorite authors, he, he writes this about how blessed we are by God. He says, We are all like that overwhelmed kid on Christmas morning, surrounded by a mountain of gifts, not even noticing the gift of our own heartbeats, not even noticing that we're breathing, not noticing that our fingertips can feel and pick up things, that pie happens to smell like pie, that honeycrisp apples are real, that dogs wag their tails, and that awe, awe perpetually awaits us in the sky. What do you not have right now that you blame God for? What do you not have right now that you look up to God with real tears, disbelieving eyes, arms raised? You never give me anything, God. Is it just a better phone? A better car? A KitchenAid mixer? Those are nice. A nicer home? Is it a better job? a peaceful marriage, a child who sleeps through the night, a husband that loves you and makes it known? Is it a wife that perhaps respects your leadership? Is it to have peace about the future? Is it for your adult child to just come back to Jesus? Or is it that God just keeps telling you to wait and wait and wait? Why, God, you never give me anything? The Father's light's giving is perfect. Every giving is good from him. And he is unchanging. He's always that perfect giver of good. Take your next breath. Feel your fingertips. Look around. God is giving you gifts all day long, every day. Don't misunderstand. We are to ask for our needs to be met. We ask for joy and love in our marriage. We ask for a son or a daughter. We ask for a spouse. We ask for a job that suits our giftings. We ask to succeed in our studies. But after asking, we turn from blaming God that we don't already have those things. We don't blame him for that. We don't blame God when they don't come in the way or the timing that we'd like them to. 
And we can turn from blaming because God is showering down good gifts on us every day already. After turning from that blaming, we must bless God. We must say to God, as one of my daughters said to me when I handed her her beloved jelly toast, thank you, Daddy. Thank you, God, for every giving being perfect, for every, every gift being perfect. We bless God when we practice regular thanksgiving or regular thankfulness for all that we have and for all that we don't yet have or may never have. In the face of a trial in this next week, whether it's on Highway 41, at the dinner table, or in the face of a real, real loss, practice thankfulness. When the trial comes, say to God, oh, how thankful I am for thee. Let me count the ways. And truly, start to count the ways. This is a fun practice to do with children because they often are more thankful for the things that we too should be thankful for. Sugar. <laughs> Donuts. Um, but beyond regularly giving thanks, beyond regularly giving thanks, give particular thanks for the greatest of all gifts. The greatest of all gifts whose life was sent and whose life was spent for you. Romans 8.32 says this, He, that is the, the Father of lights, who did not spare his own son, but rather gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, if God will give us his most precious son himself, how much more will he not give us? How much more does he give us? How much more do you not want to just bless him for what he gives to you? If you're here today and have yet to trust in the son that was sent and spent for you, the one that the Father of lights has given, trust in this son today. Bless the Lord by having faith in the son spent, the son sent to die for you. And then join the rest of us in blessing the Lord by trusting in Christ every day moving forward. Blessing the Lord by giving particular thanks for Jesus and for every other thing that we receive from his hand. To close, as I reflected on this uh, passage this past week, my mother's favorite hymn continued to come to mind, or again, as one of my daughters, they say a lot of things, I guess, as one of my daughters said, Grandma's song, uh, this, this hymn kept coming to mind. The hymn is called Abide With Me. You've maybe heard it before. Uh, it was written by Henry Francis Light. Uh, he grew up in Great Britain in the time of the Industrial Revolution. It was a time of immense advancement. But at the same time, there was immense uh, struggle, poverty, loss. People were trampled, pulled apart by machines even. And there was so many trials happening, so many temptations that were being faced. The world seemed as though it could not change fast enough. Perhaps we might feel that way in the last year. The world is not, it's changing too fast. It's decaying too fast. Listen to a few of his stanzas while I believe that they strike so well at what we've been contemplating today. He writes this. Abide with me. Fast falls the even tide, that is the evening. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless. Abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys, they grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay in all around I see. 
But O thou who changest not, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself my guide and strength can be through clouds, through sunshine? Oh, abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks. Earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, Father of lights, abide with me. Friends, our God is the Father of lights, and he does not tempt us with evil that we might sin. No, his giving is always good to us, and though our world seems to constantly change, he never does. By God's grace today, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we need him to move within us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may we bless him by running to him, especially in the things that we cannot understand. Run to him and say, Jesus, you have the words of life. To whom else will I go to in this suffering, in this questioning? May we bless him by tucking our tail and running to him from that juicy bait that may sit before us, that temptation. Go to him away from the temptation and sin. May we bless him in praying what he tells us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And may we begin to practice that regular thanksgiving in our lives, most especially, most especially for the sent and spent son on our behalf.